right, isn't it? Would you pray with me? Father, as we hear your words in Proverbs 8, would you please help us listen to wisdom? Amen. Good morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 8. We'll be reading it in sections as we, as we go this morning. But first, let me start off with, some, uh, with a story here about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Does that name ring a bell to anyone? Alexander Solzhenitsyn? He was a famous Russian author who exposed the evils of communism in the Soviet Union. He lived from 1918 to 2008. A day before Russia exiled him to the West in 1974, he released an essay titled, Live Not By Lies, a real famous uh, essay he wrote. And he exhorted Russians not to conform to the lies of the Soviet Union. He argued that those lies are an evil ideology. Those lies are an illusion. Those lies don't correspond with reality. Well, Rod Dreher builds on that essay in a book he wrote. It came out in 2020, and the title of the book is Live Not by Lies, a Manual for Christian Dissidents. And what he does in that book is show that there are some eerie similarities between communist totalitarianism and our current situation in America and that this might be affecting you more than you realize. So here's just one more recent example of how our culture is living by lies. In March 2022, during the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, you may remember this, a senator asked the judge, can you provide a definition for the word woman during this exchange? And she replied, the judge replied, I can't. I'm not a biologist. So the senator followed up. The meaning of the word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't give me a definition? And the judge, who was confirmed the next month as a Supreme Court justice, refused to define the word woman. And we all know why. If she gave a basic, scientifically viable definition, she'd have to say something like, a woman is an adult human, female. But she wouldn't dare say that because that's so out of step with the transgender ideology. The culture is pretending that a man can identify as a woman and that a woman can identify as a man. And if you identify as something, that makes it so. Our culture is playing a rebellious version of make-believe. Our culture is living by lies. You might say, well, I'm not tempted to follow that lie. So do you think I'm in danger of living by lies? Well, here are five, what I'd say, are evergreen ways that humans have been tempted for generations to live by lies. And all of these examples are from the book of Proverbs. Here's one. If you're a child, you are living by lies if you disobey what your, children, what your parents teach you. So you're living by the lie that You'll be better off if you go your own way. That's one way that children are tempted to live by lies. Second way, fathers and mothers, you're living by lies if you refuse to ever use the rod of discipline on your your disobedient young children. You're living by the lie that what God tells parents in the book of Proverbs 
is too severe or inconvenient. There's a third way, teens and adults. You're living by lies if you have sex outside of the marriage covenant of one man and one woman. Now, what lie is that? Well, you'd be living by the lie that God is withholding satisfying pleasures from you and that you'll be happy if you indulge in what God forbids. Here's a, a fourth temptation. You're living by lies if you refuse to work hard and instead you loaf around and you mooch off of others. So you're living by the lie that you're so important that you deserve handouts. And then number five, you're living by lies if you attempt to find ultimate security and satisfaction in money and possessions. So you're living by the lie that getting more stuff will make your covetous and envious heart happy. So it's foolish to live by lies. We should live in a way that corresponds with reality. We should live according to the truth. Don't live by lies, live by the truth. And that means we need to listen to God's wisdom, and that's what Proverbs 8 is about. So I'd like to preach to you from Proverbs chapter 8 on this subject, listen to wisdom. And we'll unpack Proverbs 8 in five sections, and we'll start with verses 1, 2, and 3. I'd summarize the introduction like this. Wisdom is calling out to guide you. Wisdom is calling out to guide you. So you have your Bible open. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, or the highest points beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. So she's at the main entrance crying aloud. Verses 1 to 3 are the only part of chapter 8 in which wisdom is not the speaker. The rest of the chapter, wisdom is speaking. So that raises at least two questions. One question is, what is wisdom? What is it? Because this section doesn't define wisdom. The rest of the chapter describes wisdom, but here the author of Proverbs assumes that you know what wisdom is because you've already read Proverbs 1 through 7. The opening lines of Proverbs tells you that this entire book exists to help you know wisdom and instruction to understand the words of insight. That's Proverbs 1, verse 2. So what exactly is wisdom? Here's my favorite way to describe or define it. Wisdom is skill. Wisdom is skill or ability. Here are five examples from from Scripture. Am I doing something wrong, brothers? We good? Okay. So here's one from Genesis 41. Joseph is wise in that he can skillfully govern Egypt. The Bible refers to that as wisdom. Second, Bezalel is skillful at craftsmanship and artistic design. It says he is wise. In what sense is he wise? He's skillful at craftsmanship. A third example is from 1 Kings 7. Hiram can skillfully make any work in bronze. He's wise in bronze making. And this one will blow your mind. Jeremiah 4, the people of Israel are skillful at sinning. What? Let me read this to you. Jeremiah 4.22. They are, quote-unquote, wise, and the ESP puts quotes around the word wise. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good they know not. 
It's a backhanded way of saying, you're really good at sinning. You're wise at sinning. You're skillful at sinning. And then throughout Scripture, God is skillful at accomplishing His holy will. That's God's wisdom. He skillfully does what He wants. So, what does it mean in Proverbs? A wise man in Proverbs is wise in what sense? How would you fill in that blank? A man is wise in Proverbs in that he can skillfully what? What does wisdom mean in Proverbs? In what sense is a wise person skillful? Well, one clue to answer that question is to look at parallel terms for wisdom in Proverbs. So a proverb is a form of poetry, so the lines logically relate to each other. English poetry tends to rhyme words. Hebrew poetry tends to rhyme thoughts. Sometimes the word wisdom is parallel to a different word that means basically the same thing. And there are five words that are parallel with wisdom in Proverbs 1-7. to I'll come back to this in just a second. Here are the, the parallel words. Instruction, understanding, knowledge, insight, and uprightness. Those are all parallel with wisdom. And what all these terms have in common is not merely knowing information, like a computer database can access facts, what people call AI these days. It's not intelligence. It's just good computer programming. Wisdom in Proverbs is a particular kind of skill. So I'd say like this. A man is wise in Proverbs in that he can skillfully live. So here's a definition of wisdom. The skill to live well, or you could be more precise, prudently and astutely. Prudent means acting with or showing care and thought for the future. And astute means having or showing an ability to accurately assess situations or people and turn this to your advantage. Here's an example. A a wise man does not merely understand that the speech of a forbidden woman drips honey and is smoother than oil and that in the end she is sharp as a two-edged sword and that her feet go go down to death. That's Proverbs 5, 3 to 5. A wise man doesn't just know that. A wise man skillfully applies that knowledge by keeping his way far from her, chapter 5, verse 8, and by drinking water from his own well, chapter 5, verse 15. So wisdom is not just knowledge. It's skillfully living, prudently, astutely. That's what wisdom is. That's the first question. Here's a second question. What is Proverbs 8 picturing? We just read verses 1 to 3. What is, what is this picturing here? And I'll answer that question by backing up and asking another question. What do these four sentences have in common, other than that they are all from the Bible? Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Love does not insist on its own way. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. So what do these four sentences have in common? And the answer is, they all employ the same figure of speech. Does anyone know what that figure of speech is called? It starts with a P. Personification. You heard that term before? So personification is representing a non-person as a person. So a non-person includes inanimate objects like rivers and hills and the wilderness and dry land. And it includes virtues and vices like love and folly. So consider those four sentences again. Rivers don't clap their hands. People do. Hills 
don't sing for joy. People do. The wilderness and the dry land don't have feelings or emotions like gladness. People do. Love doesn't choose to look to the interests of others. People do. Folly isn't a loud, seductive, ignorant woman. Only a person can be a woman. But you didn't trip over these sentences because you got the gist. You understand what it means to personify an inanimate object or a quality. Now, it's crucial we understand this concept of personification so that we understand God's words to us in Proverbs 8. The entire passage personifies wisdom. The reason is that uh, 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 God has chosen to contrast uh, a lady in chapter 7 with another lady in chapter 8. In chapter 8, wisdom is a person who's speaking loudly, and the rest of, uh, of Proverbs 8 is all her direct speech in which she's talking to us as if wisdom is a person. And this passage explains in more detail what Proverbs 1, 20 and 21 says, wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. So Proverbs is picturing uh, this, this person making a public announcement at a place in the city where the largest crowd of people will hear it. That's Proverbs 8. And it's the opposite of how the woman speaks in Proverbs 7. Now, I'll refer to the lady in Proverbs 8 as Lady Wisdom. That's what I'll call her. That's her title, Lady Wisdom. And since the the wicked woman in Proverbs 7 lurks in the darkness, I call her the Shady Lady. So that's just my terms. All right, so you got the Shady Lady in Proverbs 7, Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8. I'll tell you a funny story. My wife and I think this is, excuse me, my wife and my daughters think this is funny. When I was a teenager, um, I banded together with some, some godly brothers in, in, in the college, and we'd have a, a shorthand way, like if we were driving down the road and there was a grossly immodest woman on a billboard, someone might see it and go, Pro 7, 2 o'clock, and all the other guys go, oh, look the other way. It has nothing to do with the sermon. That's just a funny story. Okay, back to this. So the two women in Proverbs 7 and 8 are very different. The shady lady, chapter 7, she's lurking in street corners at night in the darkness. Chapter 7, verses 8 and 12. Lady Wisdom, in Proverbs 8, is speaking loudly when a large crowd is there during the day so everyone can hear and see Wisdom. So the the shady lady seeks a young man by seizing him, 7.13. And she compels him with smooth talk, 7.21. And her purpose is to lead him as an ox goes to the slaughter, 7.22. And then verses 26 and 27 of chapter 7 says, Many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. That's the shady lady. In contrast, Lady Wisdom is seeking to guide us for our good. So, Proverbs 8 is picturing Lady Wisdom calling out to you. Both the shady lady and Lady Wisdom are calling out to you. They're trying to persuade you. And the question is, Which lady will you listen to? Which one? And verses 1 to 3 set the scene for wisdom speech. The first part of that speech is verses 4 to 11, which I summarize like this. Listen to wisdom, and here's why. Because wisdom is true and valuable. In verses 4 and 5, wisdom basically says, listen to me. Let's read it. Verses 4 and 5. To you, O men, I call. And my cry is to the children of man. It's to all mankind. 
O simple ones, O gullible, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Develop common sense. That's the appeal. Listen to me. I'm going to help you. And then in verses 6 to 9, Lady Wisdom basically says, Listen to me because I speak the truth. Let's read verses 6 to 9. Verse 6, Hear, for I will speak noble or excellent things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked. There's nothing deceptive or perverse in them. They're all straight to him who understands. In other words, wisdom's words are straightforward, clear, and plain to the discerning. And they are right or upright to those who find knowledge. Listen to me because I speak the truth. That's what she says. And then in verses 10 and 11, Lady Wisdom basically says, Listen to me because my words are more valuable than riches. Verse 10, Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. Why? For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. So Lady Wisdom is appealing to you. Listen to me because wisdom, because I am true and valuable. Nothing you desire can compare with wisdom. So don't you want wisdom? Now the next section starts to describe wisdom. Verses 12 to 21, I I summarize like this. Love wisdom if you want to live prudently and astutely. In verse 12, wisdom describes herself by telling us whom she hangs around. Verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell or share a home with prudence. That's like shrewdness. That's the right use of knowledge in special cases. And I find knowledge and discretion. In other words, that's careful behavior that arises from clear thinking. That's why you should hang around her. Look who she hangs around. And in verse 13, Lady Wisdom describes herself by telling us what she hates. And remember verse 13, as our culture more and more celebrates LGBT ideology. Look at verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Just to hate evil is not just that you don't like evil. It's that you reject evil and have nothing to do with it. In verse 14, wisdom describes herself by telling us what she has. I have counsel. That word counsel, you could say it means good advice, common sense, sound. And she says, I have counsel and sound wisdom. That's sound judgment, resourcefulness. I have insight. I have strength or power. That's what she has. And then verses 15 and 16, Lady Wisdom describes herself by telling us what kind of people rightly use her. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. As rulers enact just law based on wisdom. Verse 16, by me, princes rule, and nobles, and all who govern justly. In other words, rulers lead with my help. You want a governmental ruler to rule by means of wisdom. Consequently, we should love and seek wisdom, verse 17, because it's valuable, verses 18 and 19, and it's upright, verse 20, and it's rewarding, verse 21. Let me show you that. Here's why we should love. First, we should love and seek wisdom, verses 17 and 18. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. 
riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. That is, wealth is a reward of wisdom. It's not the goal of wisdom. So we should love and seek wisdom because it's valuable. Verse 19, my fruit's better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield or my harvest is better than choice silver. So it's really valuable, and it's upright. Verse 20, I walk in the way of righteousness and the paths of justice, and it's rewarding. All of this walking in the way, it's for the purpose of, verse 21, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. And this raises the question, how does wisdom relate to wealth? Wisdom is better than wealth, and wealth is a result of wisdom. Sometimes in this life, in our fallen world, and always in the next life. So, summarize this section, verses 12 to 21. Love wisdom if you want to live prudently and astutely. And the next section, wisdom describes herself even more, verses 22 to 31, which I would summarize like this. Wisdom helped the Lord create the heavens and the earth. And I'm, I'm using this verb help to summarize this passage what I'm not envisioning is that the Lord is not all-powerful and he needs help. Not that kind of help. So as, as we probe into this, you'll see, you'll see more of what I mean by this. Throughout Proverbs 8, wisdom keeps exhorting us, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And you might be thinking, why? Why should I listen to you? And right here, wisdom gives four reasons you should listen to wisdom. The first reason is this, and this is my summary. I existed before God created the world. Therefore, I am distinct from creation, and I am eternal. Let's read verses 22 to 26. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, at the beginning of his way, at the beginning of creation, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up. I was long ages ago, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. So at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no depths, no ocean depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before they were formed, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first dust of the world. Wisdom saying, I existed before God created the world. So I'm distinct from creation, and I'm eternal. Here's reason number two, verses 27 to 29. I was there when God created the world. I saw him do it. Let's read verses 27 to 29. When he established the heavens, that is, the heavens in place, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, so when he marked out the place where the the sky meets the sea, the horizon, when he made firm the skies, the clouds above, when he established the fountains, the springs of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, its boundary, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was there. Now, when you want to understand an important event, you want to hear from somebody who was there. You want to hear from an eyewitness. For example, it helped me better understand the tragic events of September 11, 2001, when I listened to the audiobook the only plane in the sky. So if you read that book, listen to it. Don't read the, the printed words. Listen to it because um, they, they have the voices of all these people recorded in the audiobook. It's amazing. It's an oral history in which nearly 500 eyewitnesses tell what they saw, including President Bush, other governmental officials, first responders, survivors, friends, family members. 
Uh, hearing from an eyewitness is helpful. So do you want to better understand God and the world he created? Then listen to wisdom. Wisdom was there when God created the world. Wisdom saw God do it. Wisdom was an eyewitness. That's reason number two. Now, reason number three is the first part of verse 30. I'd summarize like this. I wasn't just there when God created the world. I helped God create the world. Look at the first part of verse 30. Then I was beside him like a master workman. And this implies that if you want to live successfully, you need wisdom. You're a fool if you try to live without wisdom. So note the progression here. Uh, Wisdom says you should listen to me because reason one, I was before creation. Reason two, I was at creation. And reason three, I was the agent of creation. I'm not a creature. I'm not a created thing. I actually helped God create the world. And then reason four, I'd summarize like this. I have been God's constant delight and I enjoy God and his world. Look at the second part of verse 30 and then 31. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing or celebrating before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man, the sons of mankind. That's all human beings. So in verses 22 to 31, wisdom is telling us why we should listen. When you reject wisdom, you are foolishly going against the grain of how God designed the world. Like, petting a cat backwards. For example, when when a man rejects wisdom by committing adultery, he suffers the destructive consequences of that sin. And when you reject wisdom, you foolishly reject the Creator Himself. So those are four reasons to listen to wisdom in verses 22 to 31. Now before I go on and finish in verses 32 to 36, we need to just pause here and go a little deeper. In my opinion... This passage, Proverbs 8, 22 to 31, is the single most challenging passage to interpret in the whole book of Proverbs. Here's why. Does this passage remind you of anyone? Are some of you thinking, is this passage talking about God the Son? So, let's start with this. Here's what all Christians agree on. God the Father created the world through God the Son. About 2,000 years ago, God the Son took on flesh, as we just uh, read together when we read the creed on the screen, and Jesus the Messiah ultimately embodies wisdom. So 1 Corinthians 1 says that Christ is the wisdom of God, as we confess today. Christ became to us wisdom from God, 1 Corinthians 1.30. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. So Christians agree about all that. But Christians do not agree about how Jesus relates to Proverbs 8, 22 to 31. And ever since Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners, professing Christians have interpreted Proverbs 8, 22 to 31 in at least four basic ways. Here's the first way. Proverbs 8 teaches that God the Son is a created being. So the the Greek translation of the Old Testament renders verse 22 as, the Lord created me. So some translations say created. If you're looking at the ESV, there's a footnote. 
that says something like, uh, in the LXX, in the Septuagint, created. I think the ESV translates verse 22 well with the word possessed. But here, further arguments for this view. In verse 24, it says, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. I was born, which could imply I didn't exist, and then I came into existence. Now, in the church's first centuries, some people denied that Jesus is God, and one of their main arguments was that Proverbs 8 teaches that the Lord created Jesus and that therefore God the Son is not eternal and thus not God. A popular teacher named Arius argued there was a time when the Son was not. In other words, there was a time when the Son did not exist. This is a false teaching called Arianism, and it is what modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses believe. According to this view, Jesus is a creature and thus not God. Christians rightly consider this view to be heresy, which is why I introduced it as a view that some who profess to be Christians hold. It's not a Christian view, but Christians don't agree on how exactly to interpret Proverbs 8 with reference to God the Son, so let's consider three more views. So Proverbs 1, here, here uh, option 1, that's off the table. Let's consider the next three. View, view number 2 is Proverbs 8 teaches about wisdom and not God the Son. So some Christians argue that we should interpret the Old Testament apart from the New Testament without letting the New Testament affect how we interpret the Old Testament. So according to this view, Proverbs 8 is exclusively about wisdom and not about God the Son at all. So God the Son is not, pro- is not present at all in Proverbs 8. Now, I don't think this view is correct. In a moment, I'll show you why I think it's better to say that in Proverbs 8, God, the divine author of Scripture, intended to communicate about God the Son. But I'll get there in a minute. For now, that leaves us with views 3 and 4. Here's view number 3. Proverbs 8 directly describes God the Son. According to this view, Proverbs 8 does not personify the virtue of wisdom. It's not about a virtue. It's all directly about a person. It's not about wisdom. It's about God the Son. So some Christians think that Proverbs 8 directly describes God the Son when he took on flesh. So in the early church, Athanasius rightly and valiantly argued against Arius that Jesus is God. But Athanasius argued that Proverbs 8 refers to Christ's incarnation. That is when Christ, when when God the Son took on flesh not to when God the Son existed before the Incarnation. So that's one subset of view number three here. Another view, in contrast to Athanasius, some Christians specify that Proverbs 8 directly describes God the Son, particularly when the triune God created the world. Wisdom is what the Lord possessed from the beginning, which means that wisdom is eternal and thus refers specifically to God the Son. So some might protest, well, Proverbs 8 describes wisdom as a woman. So how can it refer to God the Son? And and adherents of view 3 would say, well, the word for wisdom in Hebrew, chokmah, is feminine only grammatically, which is typical for abstract words. And a further argument for this view is that Proverbs chapter 30, verses 3 and 4, identifies the wisdom of Proverbs 8 with God's Son in a passage that asks, who has ascended to heaven? and come down. And John 3.13 connects Proverbs 34 with Jesus. 
Okay, got all that? Yeah. Some friends I highly respect hold this view, and it might be correct, but this view to me seems exegetically and theologically strained, and I think view four is more persuasive. So let me share that view with you. According to this fourth view, Proverbs 8 describes wisdom personified. That's what I've been arguing throughout the sermon. And God the Son fulfills this passage because he ultimately embodies wisdom. So I think Proverbs 8 connects to Jesus by analogy. More specifically, I think Proverbs 8 is picture prophecy, or you could say typology. Now, to explain what I mean by that, I'm going to take a step back and share my view on how the Old Testament and New Testament relate to each other. So I'm going to go into seminary professor mode for just a minute. You're like, are you, you're just now going into seminary? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. This, this is now seminary mode activated. All right. But if you can stay with me, I think it will better, it'll help you better appreciate how God designed the whole Bible to fit together. So here we go. And I wrote this out so you could follow along. I believe that New Testament authors consistently interpret Old Testament passages in their literary context, and Old Testament passages may have an expanded meaning that the divine author intended, but that the human author did not consciously intend. So there are three key related components to this approach, an expanded meaning, a whole Bible approach, and typology. So let me just explain what I mean by each of those. So first, let's talk about expanded meaning. I'm saying an Old Testament passage may have an expanded meaning that its human author did not consciously intend, but that the passage's divine author, God, did intend. And it's that divine intention that New Testament authors occasionally refer to when they discern an expanded meaning in an Old Testament passage. So that phrase expanded meaning does not mean that an Old Testament passage's meaning changes. What, I mean, what, what I'm saying is, in retrospect, you can recognize an expanded meaning that the Old Testament author did not consciously intend, but that the divine author intended from the beginning. So, so Solomon wrote Proverbs, I think, and if Solomon were to hear me today explaining this, I think he would say, oh yeah, totally. Like, I, I did not understand this was about God the Son when I wrote it, but uh, God intended that, and that brilliantly fits now that I know what I know and you know, and I didn't know when I, when I wrote it. Like, you have the New Testament now, and that informs your understanding, and yes, that's what God intended. That's beautiful. So it's not like the Old Testament author is going, hey, you're, you're going against what I meant. He's saying that fits with it. And I, say, I see the full picture now, and it goes together brilliantly. So that's what I mean by expanded meaning. Whole Bible approach, uh, that's the basis of recognizing an expanded meaning. A whole Bible approach views the whole Bible as the ultimate literary context for interpreting any part of the Old Testament. The whole Bible has unity because it has a single divine author. So the Old Testament authors may have suspected that what they wrote is pregnant with meanings that they didn't fully understand. But even if they didn't have such an inkling, they wouldn't object to how New Testament authors use the Old Testament. The divine author does not intend a meaning contrary to what the Old Testament human authors intended. So I say it like this, God may intend more, but not less than what the human authors intended. There's no conflict in, in the intention. Third step here is typology. Typology 
is how we recognize an expanded meaning that the divine author intended, but that the Old Testament human author did not consciously intend. Typology is picture prophecy. It's analyzing how do New Testament people and events and institutions, we call those antitypes, how do they fulfill Old Testament people and events and institutions? For example, I have on here King David. Jesus fulfills King David as a greater king. So in that sense, Jesus is the type, excuse me, the, the antitype. He fulfills the type of King David as a greater king. That's picture prophecy. David's the picture, and Jesus is the greater ultimate reality of that. Or here's another example. The Exodus. That's an event. Jesus fulfills the Exodus with a greater redemption. The Exodus is picture prophecy, and Jesus fulfills it. Or here's another example. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills that. How? He's a better sacrifice once for all time. So that's typology. It's picture prophecy. And how does this fulfillment work? By repeating Old Testament situations at a deeper, climactic level that God intended all along. You still with me? (laughs) All right. I'm going to go back into normal mode here. So I shared that little lesson about typology to help you better understand what I mean when I say that Proverbs 8 is typology. It's picture prophecy. So I'd say it like this. In the context of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 8 describes wisdom personified. In the context of the whole Bible, Proverbs 8 prophetically pictures God the Son. In other words, God the Son ultimately fulfills this passage because he ultimately personifies wisdom. God the Son is the eternally existing agent through whom God created the world. So wisdom describes God's character when he created the world, and God created the world through God the Son. So John 1, all things were made through him, through the word, through God the Son. Without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, for by him, by God the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Hebrews 1, God the Father says to God the Son, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. That's the Father talking to the Son. So Proverbs 8, 23 to 26, emphasizes that wisdom existed before God created the world. And the New Testament emphasizes that God the Son is before all things. Colossians 1, 17. The gospel, according to John, begins, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Revelation three fourteen describes Jesus as the beginning of God's creation, which I think refers to Proverbs eight twenty two. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Colossians 1, 15. In the sense that he's preeminent or supreme over creation. So, to summarize, Proverbs 8 22 to 31 says you should listen to wisdom for four reasons. I existed before God created the world, therefore I'm distinct from creation and I'm eternal. Number two, I was there when God created the world. I saw him do it. Number three, I wasn't just there when he created the world, I helped him create the world. And number four, I've been God's constant delight and I enjoy God and his world. And God the Son fulfills this passage because he ultimately embodies wisdom. All right, that's Number four, and now let's consider the final appeal in verses 32 to 36, which I summarize like this. Listen to wisdom if you want to be happy. 
Let's read it, verses 32 to 36. And now, O sons, listen to me. And the idea is, for blessed, happy, or joyful are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Don't disregard it. Don't ignore it. Blessed or happy is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting to keep watch beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. That is, he invites all kinds of disaster into his life. All who hate me love death. Now, you want to be happy, don't you? We all want to be happy. We choose what we choose because we want what we want, and what we want is to be happy. And sometimes you believe lies. Sometimes you think that sinning will make you happy. You think that rebelling against God will make you happy. And you might feel a buzz, a short-term buzz of pleasure, what Hebrews 11 calls the pleasures of sin for a season. But that pleasure won't last. You won't ultimately be satisfied by gossiping or by overeating in a greedy way or by being bitter at someone or by greedily amassing lots of money or by covetously longing for more stuff or by pretending that you're female when God made you male or by pretending that you're male when God made you female or by anxiously doubting whether God's words are true and trustworthy or by indulging in worldly entertainment or by pursuing sexual pleasures outside the marriage covenant. If you want to be happy, that is not the way. If you want to enjoy ultimate satisfaction, then you've got to listen to wisdom. There are two ways to live here. One, ignore wisdom and thus injure yourself and find death. Two, listen to wisdom and thus be happy and find life. Which way are you going to go? That's what Proverbs 8 is picturing here. Your choice. Here are the two ways. There are two ways to live. Which way are you going to go? Listening to wisdom doesn't mean merely that you follow wise advice. It does mean that you follow the wisdom in the book of Proverbs, of course. But it's more than that. Because Jesus ultimately embodies wisdom. So ultimately, listening to wisdom means that you obey Jesus, the perfect wisdom of God. And obeying Jesus means obeying the book of Proverbs and the rest of the Bible with God's help. So to summarize, the main idea of Proverbs 8 is listen to wisdom. What is wisdom? Skill. The skill to live well, to live prudently and astutely. And how does this passage lay out? You have an introduction which wisdom is, in which wisdom is calling out to guide you. And she says, listen to me because I'm true and valuable. And she says, love me if you want to live prudently and astutely. And she says, hey, I helped the Lord create the heavens and the earth. And then there's a final appeal. Listen to me if you want to be happy. So I just ask in closing, is there an area of your life in which you're not listening to wisdom? Just think about it. Is there, is there an area of my life in which I'm not listening to wisdom? Don't be a fool by ignoring wisdom. Wisdom understands how the world works. And Jesus Christ ultimately embodies wisdom. He created the world. He sustains the world. He rules the world. So if you want to be happy, if you want to be really happy, listen to King Jesus. Submit to King Jesus. Follow Jesus. Love Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. Treasure Christ in all of life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for speaking wisdom to us.
Please open our ears so that we will truly listen to wisdom. Help us reject lies and live according to the truth. Help us see wisdom as true and valuable. Help us love wisdom. Help us live prudently and astutely. We thank you that Christ embodies wisdom. Please help us treasure Christ in all of life. Amen. Amen. Can we stand up